listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of uh, the Mastering Retention podcast. Uh, today, I am super honored to have Harshal. Okay, I might put your name. I should have clarified this before we started. Carvande? That's perfect. Yeah. Oh, I got it. There we go. Um, but Harshal, you know, I've been following your stuff on Medium for a long time. Uh, you are single-handedly the one person that has almost got me to pay for Medium. I found clever ways around it, but sometimes <laughs> like I, I read so many of your articles that they pop up and it's like, oh, you've got to pay to keep reading articles on here. Uh, so I got to switch to a different computer and such. But uh, I, I just love your stuff. Every time like a new article pops up, I, I get so excited about it. I know one that uh, we might spend a little time dissecting today is actually your homescapes is a, a masterclass uh, in creating an event framework. Uh, it's something that we reference internally a lot at UserWise as we're uh, building kind of what we believe to be the next generation of live ops tools. Um, and so <laughs> I pull up that article all the time just to, you know, think about, you know, how can we better structure things like this? And, uh, you know, you're, you're the mastermind that pulled all those pieces together. So I'm, I'm just so honored to have you on the show today um, and excited to just dive in. Uh, but before we do, I'd love it for you to just give a little background. How did you get into gaming? Like, what's your story? Oh, boy. Well, uh, it, like just like a thing on the medium uh, uh, thing, like I, I do think I need to add you to like a friend list, <laughs> like one of these friend links that you can send. So you don't need to, you can bypass that, but probably we should not talk about that. Uh, <laughs> so everyone's going to want to be your friend now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so like, uh, so I'm from India. So basically, I start off first as an engineer or a doctor because that's that's what happens in India. Uh, <laughs> if who goes to uh, like higher education or college education, uh, uh, I can statistically say that 50% of them become engineers and 50% of them become doctors. <laughs> uh, so uh, since uh, since I was young, I was really into games, and uh, I would get rewarded for like you know coming first in class or doing well in school. Uh, by getting games and I was nice. really happy that uh, my parents kind of supported that madness they're like ah oh, this kid is happy with this thing that you know like makes things move on the screen but whatever yeah. whatever keeps his marks high you know <laughs> so uh, uh, I was really uh, like I would say I grew up on like uh, Super Mario and Contra mm. uh, and I have a older brother so we played a lot of like Mortal Kombat um, uh, yeah. and, and then the one game that changed everything for me was Final Fantasy 7 like I couldn't believe games could tell such a story. Characters could be so appealing. Uh, every little thing I could find out about that game and tangentially learn, like what is a Sephiroth or like you know all of these things. Uh, what is a God complex? Like like everything. Uh, I think uh, kind of goes back to like that game. My fascination with Japanese. Uh, I studied Japanese for four years after that because I just wanted to play Final Fantasy games when they came out and not wait for translations. <laughs> I, 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 got a, did, uh, I got a degree from Japan uh, for uh, N3, uh, Japanese language. And then uh, I finished, uh, like I, I chose to do computer engineering because I just thought computers will have something to do with games and hopefully, you know, I get to do something with games uh, uh, after engineering. Mm -hmm. And uh, once I finished engineering, uh, uh, there was this opportunity for me to apply for the design schools in India. So the, there are two massive uh, design schools in India. One is NID, the National Institute of Design. And uh, I have completely missed <laughs> the other one. It's IDC. Uh, <laughs> and I applied to both of them. And I got through both of the entrance exams. So I was like, okay, I'm I'm really lucky that, you know, I, I, I get to do like a master's in design. And uh, NID is like... Uh, a well-renowned institute. It's also one of the oldest design institutes uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I felt very lucky to get this uh, uh, entrance. And, you know, uh, I studied new media design. And I think that, uh, like, if I remember back in time, like, you know, what influenced me the most, probably that influenced me the most to be the person I am today. Uh, there's a lot of, like, you know, uh, just like, you know, you design and you solve things and you understand perspectives of others uh, at a design school, I think you start drawing contours to who you are. Mm -hmm. And it really formed like, you know, 90% uh, of, I guess I'm still the same person after uh, my design education at NID. Yeah. So what exactly so, does new media design mean? 
So new media design is uh, really <laughs> oh my god this is, this is this is funny because uh, even the application was like a little confusing about what the, what does this mean exactly and uh, and if i remember like some of the entrance exam questions you know they were so simple uh, i would say i would say simple to understand the question really really hard to like you know how are we, how are we supposed to answer this or what are, what are the uh, teachers looking for so uh, first i'll just give you an example of a question uh, that could get you into new media design but and then i'll explain uh, what the course was more like so the question was like you know uh, uh, when you have like a fire stove and if you have four burners and then if you have like you know uh, four uh, switches uh, uh, on the bottom in a in a row mm-hmm. which which should correspond to which burner like that it was as simple as that like oh like just tell us like which one should it be and why and mm-hmm. you know since then i've been like really fascinated with like the amount of decision making and thinking that people put in the simplest of things and the more simple it is on our end it's like you know why are like sewage drains circular and not any other shape and things like that it's mm-hmm. amazing that the amount of uh, thinking that people put in so new media design was about studying different mediums and you know uh, like you know the newspaper print video um sound and 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 even like an amalgamation of different mediums uh, and how people engage with them so that's as broad as it could get and uh, i kind of uh, uh went down the more like physical computing and gaming uh kind of uh, uh exploration in my projects so mm-hmm. so that's how uh, uh i did a bunch of uh, uh student projects uh, in games and then i went on to uh, you know work in uh different gaming companies after that. Yeah. That's great. Okay, please continue your story. I'm sorry. I just wanted to ask what new media design was because I I had some ideas but I figured clarification and that that does make sense and it, it is amazing how much design goes into things and you can usually tell who is the designer or who's it's designed for because sometimes things just make no sense and you're like, "Oh, you know, this was probably designed for the manufacturer so they can, you know, create this thing easier or faster or something like that. And then you have things that are designed for users, which obviously, you know, look and feel a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it just goes to like even like systems-based thinking. Like, of course, there are so many voting systems in the world and you could say like some are better than others, but it all goes down to like, if it's going to be hard to explain to like a random person on the street what voting system you are going to use it's not very useful if the voting system is actually better at getting the correct result you know so things like that yeah. um, so i uh, after my design education uh, i started working at this company called reliance games uh, it was in the city that uh, uh, like my parents were living in and uh, i got a break with them and we were making feature phone games <laughs> which seemed like you know oh god that technology is so amazing and everybody had feature phones and it was like like this is the best thing that can happen to humanity <laughs> uh, and we created a lot of like you know one of these one button games like uh, congregate has like a bunch of these now but feature phones like with their simple you know up down uh, left right interface and things like that it had a lot of action games and racing games but uh, it also had like a lot of these one button auto run games and things like that so I, i worked on a couple of those um i worked on this game for the movie mirror mirror that was my first like ios <laughs> android app uh, it was like an endless runner uh, and i still remember uh, I'm, i'm forgetting which website but some website called it like yeah this is what we want like a mario game on on <laughs> on uh, on feature phones and i was like really happy that somebody compared it to like you know we kind of studied a lot of world 11 like i think every designer goes to that field of like studying world 11 and you know why like uh, the first jump across a gap the you cannot fail that but the second jump is harder but you know you can fail that and and things like that so uh, that was my first kind of touching into like android and ios apps but then uh, the way relance games worked was it was this mega conglomerate which kind of uh, distributed a lot of uh, dreamworks and uh, other uh movie ips and then they got like all the ips to make games based on them so uh, they made a game on real steel which is like you know the huge jackman robots mm-hmm. fighting uh, yeah <laughs> rock and sock and robots movie and uh, that game did really well uh, uh for our studio and 
they decided, hey, like free to play is a big thing. And this is really, really early 2012. Like, you know, Candy Crush, Clash of Clans, Heyday, like they yep. were just about show. It's starting to show that. And mm-hmm. everybody was like, yeah, you know what? We will make real steel, but we'll make a free to play version of it. And uh, uh, the way that the studio worked was every designer just got their own project. And uh, because I was doing well on the feature phone side, they said, hey, do you want to do this? And I was like, yes, of course, I want to, <laughs> you know, work on uh, uh, the real steel IP. And I would, I, uh, I really want to uh, look into this free-to-play thing, which is like really killing it. Uh, and somebody very, very smart made the decision that, hey, CSR Racing has this really strong loop. And I mean, we weren't really using these terms yet, but somebody really understood that it's, it feels really good to play a session of that game, upgrade your car and come back later. And then your car parts come and you put it and you race faster and that feels really good. And they felt like free-to-play games need to have that kind of a knack, like a stickiness that mm-hmm. you should be accomplished when you play a session and you should have a reason to return and then feel like, oh, this is great. Like my part has arrived, my car has arrived, I can go on to the next race. So, so if I so if I break that down a little bit, what you're saying is um, the best free-to-play games have kind of like two things. So the first one is that every single session that you play should feel good and should feel like you're making progress and you want to come back so that you can get that good feeling again and keep making progress kind of a thing. Yep. Is that a fair summary? Yep. And and then the funny part happened, which was like my first design challenge and I had like an impossible uh, question that I hit was, in CSR racing, those cars don't really touch each other or interact with each other. So it's basically two lines racing across the screen. Like they had this like little UI at the top, which showed you like two lines racing and you had these beautiful cars racing. But in the end, it's like those two lines racing, right? Like if you go and you upgrade a part and you come back, you'll see your line moves faster than the other line. And it's perfect. <laughs> like, you know, it works so beautifully that if you lose a race and you go and you upgrade your car and you come back, you will immediately feel that feedback of like, I got stronger or you go buy a more powerful car and you immediately feel that feedback in the next race. But then when it comes to a fighting game, <laughs> it's a little different because the other guy is going to punch you anyway. <laughs> you know, whether, whatever you do to go and upgrade yourself. So it, it, it was a lot of fun trying to solve that, that, you know, I want to make sure that if players go back and upgrade their robot and come back into a fight, they should last in the fight longer or they should finish the fight off stronger and they should feel that kind of, accomplishment that hey yeah this this feels really good like the loop of like winning coins making my robot more powerful coming back and uh, we did a bunch of really interesting solutions to get that feeling across but it's fair to say i think we got that feeling across really well and it went on like you know it just blew up i think uh in its first two years or I would say first year and a half it got like a hundred million downloads and the company had like no idea that you know we were sitting on something like this and it was amazing it was really really and I was very happy with that and I was very happy that it was like one my first break was something like this so like you know I was I was really happy with this and we kind of put out uh, Pacific Rim and Hunger Games but Real Steel the free-to-play version called WRB like that was our biggest biggest success so I was I was extremely extremely happy with that okay I want to move a little faster so then <laughs> you know uh, I moved to a startup where we made like similar games I I, I like the environment of like okay wh- what more fundamentals can we learn and apply and make games from scratch and I didn't really end up working on uh, Real Steel for like longer than a year after it launched so maybe live ops for a year of like, you know, what, what could we add to it? But then I moved to a startup where again, uh, you know, uh, for the next few years, we're creating new games. Um, and then it got me thinking about like, you know, uh, uh, games as service and, you know, like how people uh, keep these experiences going for years and years to come. And there was this one company, of course, there's EA in India as well, but uh, Zynga was in India and, you know, they had like this amazing track record of like five-year-old games, seven-year-old games, <laughs> And I say that with so much passion, but I think a lot of people at the time maybe were like, yeah, I would rather work on something new than like, you know, I don't see the like, you know, stars <laughs> in my eyes when I say like four-year-old game, who wants to work on that, you know? Yeah. But but I was very curious with like, you know, how do you engage people like four years down the line, five years down the line? Like, you know, how do you make sure that you keep adding to the core in a way you know, that doesn't break the whole game or just <laughs> the player base or like, uh, so I saw the Zynga opportunity as like a, you know, learn live ops opportunity. Uh, and I joined the Farmville 2 team. Uh, by the time I joined, I think Farmville 2 was already three years old. 
Mm. And uh, uh, the best part about the Zynga studio in India at that time uh, was that all the Farmville games were uh, run from it. So we had a lot of cross learnings and oh, nice. know, we knew our audience really well. Uh, we knew like our audience would write us postcards and things like that. It was amazing. <laughs> it really felt like, you know, you're doing work that is like really meaningful for these players. And uh, those four years of my life, uh, like, you know, I, I was, I was like... I felt like I really got into the rhythm of understanding my players, understanding the game systems, understanding my game team. And we like all the balance of all three really like, you know, uh, uh, even when uh, I left and then the game was like seven years old, uh, it's still going strong today. I think, you know, that Farmville one is getting like, you know, it's, it's stopping its servers this December. <laughs> so yeah. it's got a, a few more days to go. And it, that's already around 11 years now. This is 11th year. Amazing. And, uh, yeah, so so that was that was really really cool. Uh, and then let's like quickly catch up to this year. So uh, uh, the uh, uh, I moved to Finland and I moved to Rovio, and it was this like you know cycle of like okay I made new games, I worked on live services. Here's an opportunity to make new games, and for me Finland was always like this mecca of. Uh, free-to-play game design uh, and free-to-play mobile <laughs> games especially yeah. uh, during my time at Zynga we had acquired Small Giant in Finland as well mm. as uh, the new Zynga studio which is working on uh, the new Farmville game is at Helsinki so uh, I just wanted to know what is in the water in Finland <laughs> <laughs> that that gets these guys to put out such good feeling games like we can get into systems and like you know the clarity of like the progression and all of these things that Finnish game studios do but at the end of the day, if you do the most basic action in any game from Finland, I think you can feel the magic immediately. Yeah, uh, I just want to come here and see, like, you know, what what is it <laughs> that that does that? So I've I've been here a year. Uh, uh, I was lucky to join uh, a very interesting team, which uh, uh, was working on this game called Small Town Murders, and uh, uh, we developed the game and we pushed it live during the lockdown, and it's been. <laughs> quite an interesting uh, year and journey uh, on that product as well. So that kind of sums it up. I will. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I've got a question. You've been in, in Helsinki for about a year, right? Yeah. Over. So what's in the water? What's the secret? Tell us. I'm sure everyone is curious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking about this a lot. Um, the culture back at Zynga and the culture here at Rovio or the culture at maybe a live op studio and a culture at a studio that works on new games is vastly different. Like it's literally two edges of like a spectrum. And for me, it becomes interesting because it's good for my brain to be at one end and then try to be in this other end. And it's kind of getting stretched in this interesting way. Mm. But the magic sauce uh, for Finnish game studios uh, to do so well and have this kind of magic in the core interaction that you repeat in the games is the mantra is learn by doing like full stop. Like, yes, we can do a lot of analysis. We can say like best practices benchmark, but at the end of the day, it's like every single team member, irrespective of like, you know, their experience or like, you know, if they are here to do a job, if we have an artist who's doing a job or an engineer who's doing a job, a designer, a PM, an analyst, whoever, they get to just bring like, you know, I would say like a hundred percent of themselves into the decision-making and get something mm -hmm. made because at the end of the day, like, you know, let just do it and we learn, you know, like, Hey, yeah, uh, yeah we, we almost never talk in like, obviously that's a bad thing. Let's not do it. I can show you 10 reasons why or, or something like <laughs> that. I think everybody's very open about like, we learn by doing full stop. Like, you know, uh, I, I, I find that like, yeah, I think that is the magic sauce of like, the success that Finnish game studios have had. That's, that's really cool. So I'm going to challenge that a little bit um, <laughs> because I, I know that anytime you're running uh, a team or building anything, uh, you probably, okay, well, yeah, you can just do it. But what happens when you have like a hundred different things to choose from uh, and, and like, which one should you do? Um, so how do you figure out like which thing should you try? Like obviously you don't have time to try all a hundred of them. Maybe you can try three. Do you, yeah. Is there a certain process that you know you found that folks employ to pick maybe the three with the highest likelihood of success? Uh, that's uh, like a really good point, right? Because you could always say that all the team members 
for example, have ideas or there are lots of ideas or there's lots of benchmarking going on. Everybody's doing interesting things. Lists of features. Where is your season pass? You know, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, there are a lot of things, but I think uh, like the signature of like a team that is successful is I think that they are solving the right problems and like this focus on like, you know, what are we really solving? Like uh, constantly like asking yourself, like, yes, there are 20 things we can update in our game next year, but what are we exactly like, you know, what is the biggest problem in our game or like, what is the biggest problem that we're solving? It might not be like, you know, something that we've seen in the metrics. Uh, So uh, the way I like, like to communicate with my team or even back at Zynga, the way we used to communicate was we would choose like a theme that binds our game together for the coming year. So for example, you know, uh, now I'm just making a theme up, but maybe the this year's theme is like the players should feel like heroes, full stop. So a hero is someone who's courageous, a hero is someone who helps others, a hero is altruistic, you know, and things like that. And then you kind of, even the smallest decisions to the biggest decisions for your features, everything aligns to like the player should feel heroic. And you actually write it down and you put it somewhere and you say, is this heroic, you know? So, Mm. I mean, of course, there should be some kind of goal setting of why you chose, like, you know, why do you need your players to feel heroic in the fourth year of your game now, you know, and, and things like that. But once you choose, like, I feel like a strong theme, which has come from, like, something that you really want to achieve in your game, it could be something that solves a problem. It's something that refreshes uh, your message of your game. But once you have that thing written down, then you will not see, like, a hundred things that you could do, like, you know, uh, <laughs> is, like sharing lives and daily login mm. bonus. Like, you have so many things to do. But then once you have your theme, like, I think that really ties, ties in together. And it, it all goes back to like, yes, attempt a lot of different things, but make sure you are all aligned on like this one picture, mm. one picture and one like key area that you're trying to solve. I love that. So the theme typically would correlate to a problem. So, so as an example, um, I watched a, a really good video that I recommend everyone should, um, the, the supercell game lead, I'm not sure if he's still, I think he might be, uh, put out about how he kind of came in and, and was just like handed clash of clans and said, okay, you need to, you know, make this game better. And, and he, took a little while and outlined like what some of the major problems were. And one of those problems was that uh, players were hitting a certain point and then they stopped upgrading their villages. Um, and, and they didn't really understand why that was, but eventually they were able to, you know, talk to some players and stuff and they understand that, uh, Oh, the, the way that we do wars uh, encouraged people to max out, they're like town hall nine or whatnot. And then when they got matched, they would be given advantages over people that were still town hall nine, uh, but maybe hadn't fully matched it. So they were more likely to win. And so they'd be in these like really heavy PVP type clans. And, and you are almost socially discouraged from upgrading because then you'd be a low town hall 10 and you just, you know, lose points for the clans essentially. And so that was one of the problems that they sought to solve. So like, if that was a problem, maybe a theme would be like, you know, encouraging progression or like, let's help the players grow in their villages or something like that. um, With the goal of ultimately finding a way to get them to upgrade their villages. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, like there is a slight difference between like a theme and like, you know, I would give you an example, like, like for example, like a North star metric that you could do. Uh, mm-hmm. That's another thing you could do. You could just say that, you know, we want to increase battles per session or like, you know, number of battles per session or number of battles per day is our key core metric. Everything will go up if this one key metric goes up and, you know, that's the North star. And the, 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 the plan for the year is we increase this metric, but uh, and it, it works, it doesn't work, it depends uh, on how you execute <laughs> on it. But I prefer, like, you know, I won't say I prefer, but the theme kind of gives you a little more leg room, I feel. I, I feel like, you know, uh, if, if you kind of choose like a singular metric, uh, it does have this kind of, uh, like, the environment is so dynamic, things are changing all the time, and you should be able to mm-hmm. react to that. So under something like, you know, a theme, you could probably do that. But if you're looking at like, hey, this attempts per session is something that, you know, we we, uh, we chose as an author. It, I, I just feel like it doesn't leave a lot of wriggle room. But like, I, I get what you're coming with, with the whole, you know, like 
if the players are getting signals that you know it's a dark pattern that you're setting hey actually <laughs> don't upgrade your village because you know you're going right. to clear that way uh, uh i feel those are like really important things uh i think there's a lot of talk uh, uh i think one thing that free to play mobile games do really well is to uh personalize the difficulty of the game according to who is playing it and how much they are playing it uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know like uh, a, a free to play designer or a free to play development team i think they always have this challenge of like whatever we make and we add to the game should be fun for the like a the lower engaged percentiles mm-hmm. as well as the most engaged percentiles and i think that's mm-hmm. where like you know the the tug of war happens but if like you know uh, like you have you see all these board games behind me uh, <laughs> the the best board games have like all of these kind of options oh you can like you know uh you can harvest some crops you can do some crafting you can raise some animals and there are all these things you could do but when you are like you know to win the board game you need x victory points and everything kind of translates into victory points mm. it's it's really important to know that about your game like you know like what is the driving factor for your game like you know and sure. no part of your game system should break that like it is really important that players when they have access to the upgrade to the next town hall upgrade to the next town hall why because mm. that's how all the skill trees unlock like you know they get to do more stuff if they unlock the next one and that's really important so no part of your game system should kind of interfere with that like you know like oh but also they they matches get easier if they don't upgrade <laughs> but that's the core core uh, thing that they do in the game so like uh yeah, yeah that that's that's pretty important yeah yeah so so maybe a theme is closer to i don't know if you've ever uh, read Simon Sinek's book start with why um but the the general idea there is that um he says you know when you're going and starting a company uh don't just start with like a what of oh we're going to you know build this awesome puzzle game uh start with like a bigger mission of we want to achieve x y or z so like uh at userwise we want to engage and entertain the world and the way that we're doing that is by making you know world class live ops tools and knowledge accessible to every you know free to play mobile studio empowering them to you know create experiences that players love um and so we we kind of have a niche and so everything that we do kind of orients against that so you know if we have the option to build something we take a look and say well does that mesh with it okay if not throw it out. So it's almost the same idea with like a theme for your game for the year or what not is you figure out where are we going and you can kind of use that as the filtering mechanism to figure out what are the things that we should do so that we can actually achieve that goal of making the player feel like a hero. Yeah, yeah, now that you mentioned themes and like you know like uh, when you work at major corporations they all have this kind of like vision goal team something that you know everybody can rally under uh, and i remember like uh, at zynga our, our uh, main goal was what will our players thank us for and uh, that, that that's so powerful because at the end of the day if players when they are playing your products feel very thankful that they exist like that's the most powerful thing like you know your engagement your revenue everything will follow if you've made something that instills that kind of feeling uh, and uh, at rovio our our goal is pretty simple it's just three words it's we craft joy full stop and <laughs> i feel like that's even like that, that's such a finished thing to do like just simplify it right like how like in how less words can we say what we do and and i feel like yes you know like if joy as a sentiment is felt as players engage with our products i think yes everything else will follow through uh, you know and and then it's like you know uh, that kind of instills back into the products you make like because at a corporation level yes this is what you know uh, our vision mission theme is and then like that kind of percolates downwards and uh, yeah i think i think that's really important and i think it's really important to put this on walls in your office and talk about it and start every like you know quarterly presentation with our mission statement and uh, there's this book called uh, how will you measure your life and uh, he talks about uh, having a theme for your family like you know what are your family values like you know uh, and i think that's really important too and uh, uh, i've been doing that a bit as well like you know like at the end of the day we are it's like almost like a autopilot mode how would you behave 
yeah. it, it feels really good to put it down somewhere, you know. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, that that really instills that in you. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Yep. I want to talk a bit for maybe the rest of the time that we have about live ops and just see how much, you know, information can I uh, share with the world uh, since you've learned so much. You know, I, I talk to a lot of uh, mobile game founders and, you know, their goal is I want to have a game that runs for 10 plus years. Um and, and when you say that to people, it doesn't really seem that outlandish until you get into the gaming industry and realize how difficult it is to get a game to successfully run for 10 years. Um, and, you know, we've really shifted away from back in the day, you, you make a game and you ship it and you're more or less done. Um, maybe there's like some DLC patches or, or things like that. But, you know, we've really shifted into where players are expecting almost a constant stream of new engaging content and stuff, games as a service, live ops. Um, so, you know, before we dive into it, when I say live ops, what does that mean to you? It means more of the same, but different. That That's that's what it means to me. It's it's so challenging to like, you know, like and we see it in everything, right? Like books, music, films, like whoever is kind of like creating like the next song to their first song or the next movie sequel to their successful movie or, you know, Netflix series, season six, season seven. And, you know, like all of these people and all of these teams behind this work, like they have that one goal of how much do we balance between giving them what they've come here for, but keep it still feeling different. Like, you know, you could alienate your fans and your like audience if you go too different, but if it's almost too similar, it's like, why am I wasting my time with this? <laughs> and I think everybody is playing that balance of like, you know, more of the same, but different. And, and I try to hit that uh, with live ops all over. <laughs> so maybe it games, books, movies, everything. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Um, so more of the same, but different. What would you say is the purpose of live ops then? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, we come with the silences, I think. Um, well, I think it's, uh, so, uh, you know, when we were uh, making like, the feature phone games and they were basically games we make and we put out and we start working on the next one immediately. That was like, Hey, uh, mm -hmm. in fact, it was like the design spec could be ready and you would be working on your next design spec. And, <laughs> you know, do you even know if the game got made and got shipped? We like, you know, like that would be like something that you could actually go and find out. And I, I feel like at that time there was so much clarity uh, within the team that, Hey, this is something that we want to build. Hey, these are the kind of experiences we are pulling from. Hey, if you're making an action game here is like, you know, uh, like, you know, the, the Bond movies and things like that. And here, you know, we make it a globetrotting adventure and, you know, like all of the things. It just felt like there was so much power, clarity and, and things within the team that what they want to build. Uh, then when we started doing like games as service, I think what, what moved then for the development teams is the thing that you're making is not just yours. You know, as soon as it is put out into the world and somebody else has touched it, it like, you know, you know, it's like a co-ownership, like it belongs to you, you as the team, as well as your players. And then the conversation between those two, whether it's through data, surveys, whatever, talking to players, I think that starts shaping what you're making. Like earlier, it was just like the team is kind of driven with this kind of vision that puts them together. Now it's like the game is shared between uh, the team and uh, the players. And now I think LiveOps is becoming like, like there's a huge emphasis on like, you know, the user acquisition part, which happens mm -hmm. even before, like, you know, the game team starts working on something now, which is really interesting because yes, we've reached like a saturation of like, you know, Fortnite is competing with Netflix. It's not that, you know, it's competing <laughs> right. with just games anymore. So I think now it becomes even more important that, you know, game teams get influenced by how are you even going to get the audience to your game? What is the game team really bring to the table that they want to make? And also like, you know, your game is out to players and, you know, you've uh, seen what how they react and like these kind of, there are three pillars of ownership now. And like, you know, uh, the most successful teams are the teams that can balance all of that and yet deliver something that is more of the same, but different. <laughs> mm. 
I like that a lot. So, so essentially once you've created the game and release it, it, it kind of in many ways becomes, you know, part of whoever your audience is. Um, I know a lot of times folks are, uh, trying to target a, a certain audience and you know, there's some innovative companies that have popped up like 12 traits that I know, you know, folks are using in terms of, you know, figuring out what players want and such. Um, but have you ever had it where you've created and released a game and the audience that seems to resonate and like your game is different than who you assumed it was for and they have different wants or needs than maybe you wanted to actually create or, or give them? Yeah, I think that happens every single time. If I'm <laughs> and I don't know who is going to answer this question with like, no, it was 100%. <laughs> and not one other person, you know, played our game. Uh, I think that that happens all the time. I think at the end of it, you know, there's something uncapturable about the human experience. Like, you know, everything that's trying to draw these kind of lines and boundaries and put us into sets. And like, it's almost like an inhuman way to look at people and people will always surprise you. I, I'm sure like every human has had this experience that another human has surprised them, for example. So, so I feel like it helps with some kind of like, you know, direction, goal setting and things like that. But of course you have to be ready for the surprises that come out once you have put it out uh, <laughs> uh, into the game world. And, and, I think something that like uh, 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 like anybody who's putting work out on a public forum may it be just like a post that they're putting on social media or a game that they're making and putting out putting out into the world. I think they need to, or a YouTube video, for example. I think it's really important to grasp that you know you put out something. Somebody's like say twenty percent. Uh, reactions are like, you know, they're, they're awful and then like, you know, they hate it and like, you know, what, what is this thing? And then if, whether you take that as an input or not, and you know, six months later you do another thing and yet 20%, you know, come back and like, you know, blah, blah, this stuff, you soon realize like, you know, that's like, uh, it's very intuitive to feel like, oh yes, this 20% people always do this, but it, it turns out that, you know, you cannot please everyone. Like, you know, if you do something that 20% people really didn't like and hated, uh, six months later, there will still be 20% people who will still hate it and they may or may not overlap with the previous 20% people. <laughs> That's interesting. So if I'm thinking about, you know, developing a live op strategy, um, I, again, I'm going to reference your, your Homescapes article because I love it. Um, so, uh, Homescapes, as you kind of outlined, at least in April, you know, when this is from, uh, they were running five different uh, events per week. Um, and it, it seemed like they picked the types of events and the timing of the events based on the way that their players liked to engage in the game. Uh, yes. Do you think looking at the player behaviors of in terms of how they like to consume and when they like to consume the game is an important aspect of designing your live ops? Yeah, uh, th that's a really good question. And like, you know, if I just want to simplify the question a little bit, you know, hey, you have players who play your game mostly on the weekend. You know, your sessions are up on the weekend, the number of attempts are up on the weekend, any kind of metric that you measure engagement with is up on the weekend. And, you know, it's very intuitive to like, you know, hey, of course, like they have more time on the weekend, so they are playing your game more on the weekend, full stop. And then it's like, you know, so what should be your goal? Do you want to say that, you know, like the weekdays, middle of the week, maybe starting of the week is really bad. Would you make your best bets there? Like, you know, here's where I will put my most engaging, most like, you know, I'll release new characters in my game on these days. And like, you know, I am going to push against the flow. And I'm going to say players will come back because I'm having all of these strong trigger, triggers on days where they're not coming back on so that they start coming, uh, you know, on, on that day. And like, I feel like, you know, this is, uh, uh, at least in my experience, I would say that the more you do to align yourself to the flow of your audience, it's just going to work better. And I, I know this is pretty obvious, uh, but I can constantly see this kind of, uh, like, you know, it, I think it's very unreal 
if you like you know you come back from your you know, your player motivation study and your personas and you come but at the end of the day there is a human who is taking time out of like spending time with their family or their children or even taking time with like okay i'm watching netflix but i'm also doing something on the side like you know you're just taking their time and i think it's really uh, bullish to think that i will be able to do that on against their will as well like you know i know that they don't have this kind of time on like you know the start of the week but i am definitely going to do i feel like yeah like you know you've gone too much into your like you know numbers and sets and like <laughs> trying to understand people from that framework and you forgot in that like you know look at your partner or look at your friends and look at them sitting across the table and see like you know really you're going to convince these people that like hey don't walk, go uh, walk your dog for a short walk so that you can come into like you know the clan or event but like you know i i just feel like you know sometimes it just goes a little uh yeah it's very obvious if you just come back to like you know they're human you know this other uh doing that and if you kind of move with the flow i feel like you would have much stronger results and uh for example the events in homescapes at the beginning of the week which are not as punishing like for example uh, you can just look at the the kind of streak events they run right like they have a streak event uh in the beginning of the week monday tuesday wednesday which mm-hmm. kind of is not very punishing because if you lose you like move down one tier uh it doesn't reset the streak so it's like okay it's a, it's a little uh, casual uh or they have events which are like hey just finish 10 levels in the next 3 days and you'll get some rewards full stop like you know it's not really pushing players uh, or punishing players uh but then as the weekend or like friday saturday sunday come around uh, you can start seeing like okay now the streak event is really hardcore like you can get really really good rewards but if you lose you go back to zero and uh it's also the time where like the competition events start and it's like okay now let's gear up for this you know 50v50 <laughs> uh you know championship mm-hmm. and uh, and let's see who comes up on top like you know just winding down my friday everything's done like i'm going to get into this and all through like sunday feels accomplished because i came first and now i can face monday it feels mm-hmm. really good this game is great like you know it kind of like you have to look at how it, like what is the game solving for their reality right like everybody wants to go like you know is down <laughs> when monday is going to come along <laughs> but you have left them with this feeling of accomplishment and fulfillment and like you know they may not engage back in the beginning of the week again as strongly but like you know you left a strong emotion in them and like you know going with the flow uh i think there's another like very very public study uh when the first social games came out on facebook that like you know uh, they were all these energy based games with a lot of different timers and things like that and if you look at some of those studies back then the timers were not random the timers were literally based on the facebook metrics of how often do people come visit facebook and for how long so those timers were created in a way that okay people visit facebook four times a day here are our timers for the different energy systems in our game and kind of aligned to the kind of patterns that they were already seeing players to and supercharging that so it fit into people's lives as they engage mm. with facebook and now with our mobile phones that's i think the framework you should think of like the framework in which people use their phones you know it's also very like uh, it's not the most active framework like they could be watching netflix walking their dog eating a meal and you have to factor that in that you know that that's the kind of things that you are designing for or solving for or uh, being experienced uh for and then how that fits into you know your game mechanics and your live ops calendar and when do you know push what emotion yeah yeah that seems really powerful so you know at, at what point would you try to time those things from like a a design perspective like would you try to uh look at metrics to see okay for a similar game how often do people check this or would they check this you know per day or you know do you wait until you get to soft launch and then you collect actual data and then you figure out okay this is how often we should have our you know stamina reset because every time they check it we want them to be able to do something that feels meaningful to them or you know how would you approach something like that i i think i get the live ops bit where it's like well let's look at the uh usage data to see okay when are they more engaged when are they less engaged oh if they're more engaged on monday because they're probably playing games at work uh when they're away from the family because it's a you know middle-aged male heavy game uh let's maybe put something a little bit more uh intensive on monday that they can kind of do <laughs> while at work and feel accomplished um and then over the weekend when they seem to be busy with the you know wife and kids or whatnot uh let's give them a little bit 
less engaged so they can, you know, casually play at night after the kids fall asleep because they seem to hop on at, you know, 830 or something like that. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, I think uh, your question was about like, you know, would you wait or would you just collect all of this data first before you kind of uh, come up with these kind of systems? Or like, if you look at the event framework, like, you know, here are the different things you want to do because we see our player engagement and experience a certain way. Uh, the thing with the game teams uh, and working on live games is there's always trade-offs. So if you say that, hey, let's spend some time analyzing something, you're spending some time doing less of something else. And my approach always to these things is make sure like, you know, it's written down and this feature is aware of what it's trying to achieve. Though you may not have data, you have hypothesis of like, you know, hey, we have most concurrence during certain days of the week. Let's have this event run certain days of the week. And what should it actually like, you know, accomplish or ex like, you know, your expectations are that people have a few more attempts or people have a few more sessions because you're giving them unlimited energy or, or things like that. And if you have that kind of thinking from the get-go, I think the team aligns really fast on like what of these levers should be server controlled and how flexible things could be. We know, don't have all the data right now, but we know that, for example, this feature needs to scale for our top 20% audience, which have a very different way of you know, consuming our content than the you know, percentile 50 audience. But we know that this you know, uh, is going to be consumed by both of these audiences. So it's good to just be aware of those things. You might not have all the information, but the thinking needs to be there so that you can react to it. Like, you know, if you're working on a feature and, you know, once it's in production and, you know, you, all of these things are happening in parallel and you get the data, then it should not change the feature then that, hey, we are actually making the wrong thing and like nobody needs hmm. it. You know, you know, like. So I think uh, it just comes from like, you know, you may not start with perfect information because that's that like infinite time. Uh, it's good to just make sure that you have all of these levers and you have that kind of like, you know, thought of like what environment is this going into and what change do we expect from it and then have those levers be flexible in your systems design as well as the way that you uh, configure it uh, you know on your server and things like that that's awesome so a lot of it is just coming down to here is kind of my assumption and here's what I'm trying to do with this and even if I don't have data now I can always come back to it and see is this actually accomplishing what I, you know, wanted it to? And if it aligns with my overall, you know, theme, uh, you know, then I can come back and, and reassess if it's not meeting those goals kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, there's one thing that I feel that, you know, like development teams, whether, you know, you're not somebody on the analyst or PM vertical, you're, you're on the design team or the engineering team or the art team, I feel it's really important to, if you're working in free-to-play games to come into this, what does success look like if you're changing the art of this character? You know, like it's really good to have that kind of thinking when you're working in free-to-play mobile games. Uh, uh, and it gets you into this kind of thought process of like, if fundamentally this changes this metric, you should be very clear that it's good for your game or not. You know, and I, I know it's like a very simple, obvious statement to make, but you'd be surprised by the number of times, you know, like if you break down into like, yes, we did this clan upgrade thing, but we made the matchmaking according to the trophies. And that's why, you know, like players realize that if they don't have a higher clan, <laughs> they can actually get away with, uh, you know, uh, easier battles. Like that's the kind of thing, right? Like you really, really need to lock down that, you know, if you're increasing or if you're changing a behavior in a certain way, everybody should, should be very clear that this is good for the game. Like, mm. you know, having a sad character come up on the screen to elicit some kind of like, hey, you know, there's a transaction moment here and this character is really sad. You know, this transaction moment is going to solve this character's problem. Like, this is really important to like, you know, all the other interactions that come after it. And you should be really careful with yes, this is the right thing that we want to instill in the players. So, so, so that's, that's how I would think about that. Yeah. I like that. That's great. Okay. Well, Harshal, I feel like I could keep going for so long, but I, I know we're about at time here. So um, I have one last question that I always try to ask. Uh, if you had one tip to help boost retention in a game, what would that be? Hmm. 
I'm, I'm just going to need a moment because yeah, take your time. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, of course it's like a very broad question, but I think if I had to give like the simplest answer to this, you have an idea, your game is live, you know, uh, there's something to do with retention that you're trying to fix. You take that idea and you just do an elevator pitch with a completely random disconnected person from like the reality of your game network and you know, your, your gaming friends. Like uh, my partner is not really into games. Like he's really into animals and we have a lot of pets and things like that. <laughs> but, you know, I would really just like, you know, hey, uh, people play my game. You know, this is a game like this. I was thinking I would do this and, you know, I was hoping like, you know, people would like it. What do you think? I think just having the dialogue, like how simple is it to explain to some complete, someone who's completely disconnected from your product, like immediately get it like, you know, hey, we have a game on this theme, like, or we have this farm. And I'm thinking that, you know, if people get a pet on the, a dog on the farm, they're going to really engage with it. Like click, you know, you can, you can see how instantly that, that feels right, you know? So if there is like a magical wand that you want, I think like, always just get that idea to somebody who's not really connected to the gaming mm. and just see like, first of all, is it easy for you to explain if it's going to be like, you know, this is how our LO matchmaking works and we are going to change that matchmaking to something else. Like, no, but, but you know, as simple as that, like, you know, people already come and play this game and they like their farm and it's good. Adding a dog to the farm. Do you think that would have engaged players better? Bam. Like, you know, like, it would it would work that way. So I think that's that's my advice. Like if you're looking for improving retention and you have ideas for that, just talk outside of your game studio, your game team, your game network. Mm-hmm. To literally like you know uh, the supermarket woman who tried who helped you get you know like the bread or something from the supermarket, and you're like, hey, you know, like I work on something that is this, you know, and I was thinking of adding this. What do you think? Full stop. And you know, you'd immediately get your answer whether that's gonna you know have an impact. Uh, on retention for your wide, wide audience or not. That's awesome. I love that. That's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, Harshal, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, I really hope we can do some some other stuff in the future or have you back as a guest. This has been uh, super amazing. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, if, if folks do have any questions, is there a good way for them to get in contact with you? Um, yeah. I mean, they could just go to the blog and there are lots of links to like reaching me via that. Uh, they could, of course, find me on LinkedIn and things like that. But yes, go read that blog, guys. <laughs> and and uh, you can find all the contact details from there uh, via email or LinkedIn or uh, any of those things. So the blog is Game Design Post on Medium. And yeah, you can, you can find me there. And thank you so much. Uh, this is the first time we spoke. And I think, uh, you know, you, you've been delightful. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, this is great. All right, Harshal, uh, pleasure. We'll, we'll put a link to your blog in this post too, so folks can easily find that and subscribe because you absolutely should if you're in gaming. It's amazing. Uh, thanks again. All right.